I kind of just gotten out of the hospital and my hands in this like crazy cast, uh, my legs in like a crazy cast. And, uh, there's this guy on the elevator. We'll call him Chad. Cause he was, he was kind of a bro and Chad has like a cast on his wrist. And so his friend asked him, Oh, how'd you get that? And he goes, Oh, I was attacked by a shark. And I was like, Oh, no way. Me too. And then both of them just like looked terrified, uh, <laughs> and like realized I wasn't kidding. Welcome to How To. I'm Charles Stewart. If you're anything like me, this is the time of year when you go to the beach and you surf and you swim and you hang out in the water. And my wife, while we're in the ocean, she loves to mention to me how much she likes the movie Jaws, which I point out to her every single time is a totally messed up thing to say while we're in the ocean. But at the same time, it's not like I really need to be worried about a shark attack, right? I mean... How likely is it that I will be attacked by a shark? Well, meet this week's listener, David. I went on a family vacation to Hawaii, and my dad and I, you know, about 9 a.m. in the morning, went stand-up paddleboarding, and something hit the back of my board. And there's usually a lot of, you know, dolphins and whales and things like that. And so I thought maybe a whale had breached or something. But my dad, who was couple of yards behind me yelled shark and saw that there was a shark. And so I scrambled um, as fast as I could to get up on a board. Uh, I was mostly out of the water uh, except for my right leg. And then David looked down and he couldn't see his right leg. And the shark came from below. And so my right leg went down its throat. uh, And then it started pushing me away from the board and it was kind of thrashing and I was trying to hit it um, and punch it. And my dad was hitting it with his paddle uh, to try to get it to let go of me. And um, when I went to punch it one time, my right hand went into its mouth. And so then my right hand and my leg were in its mouth and it was thrashing back and forth. And at this point, I'm like pretty certain that the shark is is you know, I'm going to die. Like the shark is going to eat me, uh, completely. Cause I'm like halfway down its throat. And, um, at some point it thrashes hard enough where my leg breaks off and I'm no longer in the shark's mouth and I'm just floating there on my back. There's like a dark maroon colored blood everywhere. Um, I look down at my arm and I can like see the bone in my wrist and I look down at my leg and I can see that, you know, my foot and a lot of my leg is missing. And, um, you know, at at this point I'm certain I'm going to die. My dad is on his board, um, you know, on his hands and knees with his paddle, kind of worried that the shark is going to come back. And then we had a conversation where I just thanked him for, you know, everything in life that he had given me. And I said bye to him and told him that I loved him. The shark at that point had swum away. Luckily, there were some people on the beach who saw what was happening and and they got in a canoe and they started paddling towards David and his dad. They pulled me out of the water and then they could see that my arm was messed up and my leg was, you know, partially missing. And then fortunately, there was somebody on the beach who was a a fireman in Hawaii. And so he kind of took over the situation and used rigging rope and surfboard leashes and whatever they could find to make tourniquets. Within 10 minutes, a helicopter landed and they loaded David on and then immediately took off, headed to the hospital. Things were starting to become like 
fuzzy and I was like extremely lightheaded because I'd lost a lot of blood. And I just, I, I remember when they picked me out into the canoe, I was like still thinking I was going to die. And I was like, oh, poor guys, like they're going to be traumatized for life because I'm going to die in this canoe. And then I got to the beach and I was like, oh my gosh, there's like kids around and families on this beach. They're all going to be traumatized when they watch me like die in this canoe on this beach. But then one of the guys in the helicopter, he said this thing to David. The guy in the helicopter was like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is really bad. You might not make it. It's like a 20 you know, plus minute flight to the hospital. Like, I can't give you any pain medication because you'll you'll go under. So just like keep your eyes open and breathe and like try to stay conscious. And so at that point, I felt like I needed to like prove this guy wrong. David somehow survived the flight. And, and when they got to the hospital, he was rushed into surgery. And I think my dad had like lied to my mom. Like, I think she knew there was a shark attack, but didn't know like quite how bad it was because she looked like mortified. Like, I don't think he mentioned the whole thing about like my leg missing or anything like that. After multiple surgeries to repair his right hand and severed leg, David miraculously pulled through. It took months of work, but doctors were able to essentially save his right hand, though he lost everything under his right knee. And so you might think, end of story, right? He'd gotten past the worst of this experience and he's still alive. But surviving the shark attack, it turns out, wasn't the hardest part of this ordeal. It was just the first step on his road to recovery. On today's show, we'll learn how to grapple with trauma, and and not just shark attacks, but also the kinds of traumas like divorce or an unexpected death that many of us unfortunately experience at some point. How do we make it to the other side? Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Let's take a step back. Tell me, like, if I had met you before that that shark attack, like, who were you? I was your typical, like, young, ambitious ladder climber, you Uh know, like, trying to go to the best schools, get the best jobs, like, working crazy hours, um, running a software development team at at a startup, and I was also, you know, working for a venture capital fund. And, and how old were you? I had just turned 25 a couple days before this happened. What was the lowest point in your recovery? Um, I think particularly like when I was in a wheelchair, just every little thing like annoyed me. Like I'd go to a restaurant and there would be stairs and no like ramp. And so I just was like so angry and pissed off. It's taken David a full year of occupational and physical therapy, but today his body works. He's regained most of his right hand's mobility, and with the help of a prosthetic, he can walk. He he has some scars, but if he was wearing pants and you saw him walking down the street, you'd have no idea that he'd been attacked by a shark. But inside his head, things haven't recovered quite so quickly. I had become this like bitter, angry person who on one level was like very grateful that they were still alive and had been so lucky, but on the other level, just like 
didn't have a lot of patience for other people because it was like they were complaining about something they had just gone through that was, you know, probably upsetting to them. And I like couldn't care less because I was like, trust me, it's not as bad as like what I just went through, which I don't think is like the right attitude. Um, But I think at a subconscious level, that's how I was operating for a pretty long period of time. And so we brought in an expert who has written the book, actually several books, on how to overcome the emotional fallout from severe trauma to help us understand what David went through. My name is Bessel van der Kolk. I am uh, president of the Trauma Research Foundation, and I've been studying uh, the effect of trauma on mind, brain, and body for the past 40 years or so. Bessel grew up in the Netherlands right after World War II, which is what got him interested in trauma in the first place. And, and you were born in The Hague in 1943, right. um, which is three years into the German occupation of the Netherlands. That's right. I, I have quite vivid memories of bombed-out cities and also of uh, relatives who came back from Japanese internment camps in Asia and people coming back from German concentration camps. So it was a very, very vivid part of my experience. Bessel was really interested in these experiences. And so he studied psychiatry here in the U.S. and and then began working with Vietnam vets who had recently come home from the war. This was back when PTSD was barely understood. And there was this one soldier in particular who really stood out. Very smart guy and capable. And he gets drunk all the time. And he can't stand being with his kids and his wife. And uh, so he has, has a dual personality on the one hand. He is very, very intelligent and capable. On the other hand, he's just haunted by the death of his friends and has nightmares about it and can't really connect with anybody. And over time, we slowly learn that a very core issue of recovery from trauma is the cultivation of self-compassion. Let me ask you, David, does this sound familiar? I think what he's saying really resonates with me in the sense that it it was hard to find self-compassion. And so I had become like kind of a jerk, um, but I wasn't aware that I'd become a jerk. And so like my mom is like doing everything. She was cooking every meal. Like for a long time, I couldn't bathe myself. And you could imagine like, I mean, it's still, it's still as upsetting to me as you can uh, imagine that like I was kind of rude about it. Like I was kind of like not thankful and gracious for all the things she was doing. Um, And so I think that I was being an asshole. Like there was like, there was no kind of way around it. It was just like, I would just like pick fights about random things. Um, And, and, and I was just ultra intense about everything. This intensity also spilled over into David's work, which started causing some issues. I was just like ruthless. Like I, I, the, the nickname at work was like Robo Shark, where I would be like, this, this is the rules. These are the way it's supposed to be. And so I had like zero empathy or zero understanding because I just was like so brutally, um, you know, robotic and mechanical about things. And I think a lot of that comes from disassociation of, of my emotions and the emotions of people around me. And, and the thing that's hard to understand is I wasn't aware of it. Like, I was so blind. Like, to me, it just felt totally normal. David found that this intensity and this inability to connect, it made it hard for him to get back to normal, which is what he desperately wanted but couldn't seem to achieve. But whenever someone would invite him out or, you know, try to be nice to him, David would lash out without really understanding why. 
people would say, Hey, you want to go on this ski trip? And you're like, yeah, not, not really. Like I can't ski. Um, or, you know, Hey, you want to go for a jog? It's like maybe in a couple of years. So on one level, you know, there's a logistical, like physical disability that makes it so you can't do things. And then on another level, you're unable to emotionally connect with these people in the first place. And so that can result in being really lonely. Which brings us to our first rule. To help your recovery, it's critical that you make connections with other people, that you try to rebuild a life that isn't based entirely on thinking about your injury or your trauma. We all need friends and communities. But that can be really hard, particularly after something happens to you, because your friends and your family, they're trying to learn how to treat this new you. And you yourself, you're trying to work through these frustrations and challenges that didn't exist before. And so you have to draw on your compassion, both for yourself and for others, to find some way to connect. I had many conversations with with my mom, but I think the one that really stood out to me was like her just telling me that I had been kind of a jerk and that I was being kind of a jerk and that I was unaware of that. Um, That was both difficult for me to hear and I think a big turning point for me because then I had to really work to try to connect with other people and really be aware of how uh, I'm making other people feel um, and not just about myself. Then all of a sudden, you know, work started going better and your friendship started going better and, you know, dating started going better and everything just sort of started to improve. And so I think my mom really pushed me to help understand that like generally the world kind of gives you back what you give it. When we come back, we'll look at how any of us can connect after a traumatic experience. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We're back with our expert Bessel Vandercook and David, who survived a shark attack. 
One of the things that Bessel most tries to get across to his patients is that even after your body has recovered, even after you're out of the hospital, that doesn't mean that your brain realizes the trauma is over. And so you have to think about your recovery as twofold. There's the physical aspects, and then there's the mental parts, and they can be pretty disconnected. Bessel, how common is it that someone has physically recovered from something, but, but their head is still inside the event? Because David has technically physically recovered at this point, right? Well, the actual attack is over, but he's living with a lot of aftermath, uh, so it's not over in a way. Uh, but listening to the story, what I hear is how lucky he was, how fortunate it was that he co- comes from a functional family, where people are able to say to you, you're a jerk, when you are being a jerk. Um, so what I hear from this is, is a deep sense of caring for a member of the family who was uh, very badly hurt. What would you have done to help David when he's at that bleak moment and he's lonely and he's depressed and he's frustrated? Well, I would be interested to know how well he was sleeping and how well he was able to concentrate and to uh, pay attention to stuff. Because part of being traumatized is that your whole brain becomes very hyperactive and all over the place and people's and misdiagnosed people as ADHD and all kind of stuff because it's so hard to stay focused and to uh, be grounded inside of yourself. Um. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't concentrate. Like, I, I couldn't read a book. I couldn't really work or focus on work. I couldn't carry a conversation for very long without getting sort of distracted in, in my own thoughts. When I was coping with pain, you know, I, I was in my head and not thinking about the pain. Um, I had a lot of nerve pain, too. So you, like, you think that your hand is moving when your hand's not moving, or you think that your toes are moving when you don't have toes or things like that. And so... Yeah, I definitely, there was a big dissociation with my body. When you're at this point, when you're in the wheelchair, when you're, when things are still hard, did people treat you differently? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember like one particular example was I was in New York for meetings with a, a large investment bank and it was also snowing outside. So I was like a little bit disheveled because I had to like wheelchair through the snow And so I'm in the lobby and one of the security guards told me that I wasn't allowed to hang out in the lobby and kind of like said it like I was homeless or something. And I got like super pissed. I was like, no, actually, like I'm here for a meeting. And so people, when you're in a wheelchair, will talk to you very slowly, like as if because you're physically disabled, you must also have a mental disability. And I just found it like incredibly frustrating. So Bessel, when you're working with people and you're helping them get used to this new normal, right? You're helping them think of their body that's been been changed in some way and other people react to that body in these ways. How do you help them work through that? It takes an enormous amount of, of strength and self-compassion because um, people look at you as defective and then you need to hold your own and say, no, I'm a worthy person. And that's that's quite a quite a big job. It's very important to say, yeah, part of you feels like your life is over, and in fact, a part of you, part of your life is over because something has shifted, and you will not be the same person as before. This is the next rule. It's okay to admit to yourself that you're angry, 
and that what happened to you is unfair. It's okay to grieve for the life you used to have. In fact, it's essential to grieve for that old life so you can accept the new one. So you can say goodbye and move on to the next chapter. And one way to help yourself do this, paradoxically, is to force yourself to focus on what you're grateful for. Which can be hard after this awful experience. But gratefulness is how we move on, as David discovered. Whether it was like the medical team, like who, you know, very explicitly saved my life, or my friends, or coworkers, or just like in anyone I could think of who had really had a big impact and helped me, um, I kind of, you know, after this moment of realizing I had been a jerk, like really leaned in on on being grateful and something about being grateful for everything I had just like made me feel better. Um, I, I just wrote out letters like telling people explicitly and honestly how I felt about them and and thanking them. And people don't don't get a lot of letters. So there's something nice about getting a handwritten note from someone that makes them realize how appreciated they are and how grateful somebody is. Bessel, will you help me understand why that makes sense? Because I'm thinking that if I had been attacked by a shark, my feeling would not be of gratefulness. My feeling would be of <laughs> of of wrongness and of injury. Like of all the things in the world, why am I the one who got attacked by this shark? I'm, I'm very moved by this. It's such a beautiful way of dealing with it. Um, very much reminds me of 12-step programs. Uh, part of 12-step programs is to acknowledge what effect it has had on you and what it ha- how has it affected other people and making that connections and making your amends with people you have hurt. Very important. And also it is a special occasion. I see it uh, in people who are in disasters together. They get very close because a disaster really uh, sharpens your sense of being part of humanity. And sometimes the people who actually were intimately involved in the traumatic event become uh, the most important people in your life. So let me ask, because we've been talking about this connection, and I've heard a couple of things that you've said. One is to seek out other people. And another way of creating connection is to to be grateful and express the gratefulness to the people in our lives. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't push that on people. And I think people need to discover these things for themselves. It's better not to tell them what to do, because they, then they feel guilty for not doing it or not feeling that way. That's interesting. Uh, what's, in, what's impressive and very moving to me in David's story is that he invented this. And that's really part of the joy of doing this work, is that people who have gone through horrendous experiences need to create new realities and new possibilities. So the next rule is, you shouldn't necessarily think of your recovery as following a bunch of rules. The important thing is to create your own path to finding meaning from this event, and to find meaning that has nothing to do with this trauma. Like, why the hell does a shark come and tear my leg off, for God's sake? Uh, But at some point, we make a choice on some level whether to just see the world as a random, cruel place, or whether we want to create meaning out of our lives. And I think many people are traumatized 
get a deeper appreciation of how precious things are and how valuable things are and then become real advocates of of this real spiritual approach to life. What helps, of course, tremendously is to meet one or two people who really believe in you, who, despite the fact you're feeling desperate and angry and nihilistic, who see your soul. David, does that sound right to you? What have you learned as a result of this? Like, what's the new meaning that you think you weren't aware of before this attack happened? One that comes to mind when you think about how improbable a shark attack is, um, is that I used to think of like probability as this thing I should use to guide my individual decision making. I'd be like, oh, well, this thing is more probable. And so therefore I'm going to bet that that happens. And so, you know, on, on one hand, I, I, I still acknowledge that like probability is a guiding thing you should use. But on the other hand, very improbable things can happen to you. Um, and so you should look at the flip side, look at the positive of those improbable things. Some of those will be as bad as shark attacks, but some of those could be really good things too. What I hear you saying is, is some people would say I got attacked by a shark and that's a one in a million occurrence. And, and I, I was the unlucky one in a million. But what you're saying is actually like, well, by that same token, I might win the lottery or, or even better, I might go out and I might start this company. And even though it has a one in a million shot of working, I can become that one in a million. Exactly. And this is our last rule. Each of us will have painful, unfair experiences in life. Some are more traumatic than others, but how we choose to engage with those traumas, how we seek out other people and try to turn those setbacks into strengths that we learn from, the meaning we make from them, that's what really matters. That's how we shape what life looks like on the other side. David, can you tell us the story of of you returning to the ocean? Yeah. Um, so this would have been um, December. Uh, it was at the same beach with my dad. And uh, I think my, my brother was there too. And some of the people who, who had saved my life were there too. And we went paddleboarding. And I found it to just be one of the most kind of magical times I've ever gone paddleboarding. We saw manta rays, we saw a pot of dolphins. Um, other people who were on the water were were like cheering for me and cheering me on um, because they, they knew what had happened. Um, and it was just a very powerful emotion of feeling all of the love from, you know, ev- everywhere around me. Wow, wow. That's really beautiful. That's extraordinary. That's um, um, I'm sort of blown away by it. Actually, it is the right thing to do. And sometimes in therapeutic environments, we try to recreate something like that. Ceremonies are important. And ceremonies are important in terms of saying, "I've moved on with my life. I've had my baptism, my my uh, bar mitzvah, my." college graduation to say, this is a piece of my past and I'm sharing with the people who are important to me. It's a very important piece of recovery. David, were you, were you afraid at all when you got back on that board? No, and I, and I think I felt that I'd made it through and survived before, thanks to all these people around me. And so I wasn't, I wasn't worried while all those people were with me. 
Thank you to David for talking to us about his experiences and to Bessel van der Kook for his fantastic advice. Make sure to look for his books, including The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And an important note that we wanted to add, David's recovered with the help of friends and family. But if you are experiencing trauma, and most particularly, and Bessel wanted us to emphasize this, if you're experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, where you keep reliving a traumatic experience over and over, it's important to find a therapist to help you. This isn't something you have to do on your own, and some kinds of trauma can really benefit from the help of a trained professional. You can find information on finding help at the National Alliance on Mental Illness at nami.org and the Department of Veterans Affairs, which has resources for everyone, even non-veterans, at ptsd.va.gov. If you are struggling with something, we would love to hear from you and maybe have you on the show to see if we can help you out. You can send us a note at howtoatslate.com or you can also leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen is our production assistant and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is Senior Managing Producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is Slate's Editorial Director of Audio. Special thanks to Kevin Bendis, Bill Carey, and Sung Park. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening.